want to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me this morning to 2 Samuel chapter 18. 2 Samuel 18. If you're looking in the Pew Bible, you should find it on page 343. Page 343. Rebecca and I sometimes joke um, that the longer we parent, the less we know about parenting. Um, before we had kids, we were experts. Um, I think some of you know exactly what I mean when I say that. Now that we are four years into this experience, we are not as convinced of our expertise. One thing that parenting has taught us, especially with some of the unique challenges and blessings that God's given to us and our two boys is to have more empathy for others. You know, when you look around to understand that the people that you see every day, that they're going through their own things. So the people we encounter, we often have very little idea, if any idea, what they're going through. The people we see at the grocery store, at work, at the park, in the restaurant, or even at church. We don't always know what news they might have just received. We don't always know what argument they might have just had. We don't know what physical or emotional or financial hardship they might be enduring. So it seems wise for us all to be a bit more patient and a bit less judgmental with one another. I want us to try to uh, apply that truth to the passage that we're about to read. Because as we read this passage, you're going to be tempted to side with one person or the other. You're going to be tempted to be impatient with one person or the other, to be judgmental of one person or the other. And I want us to try to withhold judgment as long as we can. David's son, so by way of background to get us caught up, David had a son named Absalom who rebelled against him and has been leading this national rebellion against his own father. Everything built up last week to this big showdown between the two sides, those who are loyal to David and those who are loyal to Absalom. And in the midst of that battle, David's son Absalom died. Today we're going to see the fallout of that and how different people interpret Absalom's death and respond to his death. Not everyone reacts the same way. And again, our temptation is going to be to side with one response over the other, to say this one's right and that one is absolutely wrong. We're going to be tempted either to shake our heads at David's excessive weeping or we're going to be tempted to look down on the harshness of Joab as he's going to rebuke David for his weeping. But I want us to try to keep a level head and look at what has happened, not just from David's perspective or from Joab's perspective, but ultimately from God's perspective. And so let's read together 2 Samuel 18. We're going to begin in verse 19. So 2 Samuel 18, verse 19. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run and carry news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. And Joab said to him, You are not to carry news today. You may carry news another day, but today you shall carry no news, because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, Go tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, Come what may, let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, Why will you run, my son, seeing that you will have no reward for the news? Come what may, he said, I will run. So he said to him, Run. 
Then Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall. And when he had lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out and told the king. And the king said, If he is alone, there is news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer. The watchman saw another man running, and the watchman called to the gate and said, See, another man is running alone. The king said, He also brings news. The watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, He is a good man and comes with good news. Then Ahimaaz cried out to the king, All is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, Blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. And the king said, Is it well with the young man Absalom? Ahimaaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what it was. And the king said, Turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. And behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. It was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face. The king cried with a loud voice, O oh, my son Absalom, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate. And the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. Let's pray together. Lord, um, what a challenging passage this is. And I pray that you would help us to hear this as, <clears throat> as it is. A word from you to us, to your church. And God, that um, we would see here a, a picture of the devastation that sin brings into the world and of the deliverance that you have wrought in the world as well. So God, help us to see this not just as a story of a man losing his son, 
not just a story of a rebel being killed, but the story of your mercy toward us as sinners. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now this passage has some really complex questions that we're going to try to wrestle with. But I want to begin by attempting to boil down the message of this text, and then we'll try to flesh it out. So put as simply as I can, the message of this passage is that sin devastates, God delivers. Sin devastates, God delivers. Both of those statements are true, and they run parallel to one another in this passage. So we'll see them throughout. But let's start with the devastation of sin. Sin devastates. In the providence of God, David was not on the battlefield. So he does not yet know what happened here in the story. We know more than he does at this point, And he is finding out what happened both in the battle and specifically to his son Absalom. The suspense builds as David waits anxiously for news of what transpired. That's the point of this exchange between Ahimaaz and Joab and this Cushite. In verse 19, Ahimaaz petitions Joab. Joab was the commander. He was the guy that David had sort of put in charge of the army for the battle. Ahimaaz was a messenger who had served David faithfully for, for some time. And he petitions Joab to be the one who goes to tell David the news of what happened. Please let me run and I'll tell the news to the king. But Joab senses rightly that this particular news is not going to be well received. He says to Ahimaaz, frankly, you will have no reward for the news. In other words, if you think Ahimaaz, if you have in your mind that David is going to greet you warmly when you tell him this and that he might even promote you, you're barking up the wrong tree. David's side won the battle, but David's son died in the course of the battle. And so instead, Joab sends this person that's just simply called the Cushite. Not, we're not given a name. Cush, Cush was a place in uh, what's modern-day Ethiopia, so this would be like an Ethiopian fellow. Um, Joab sends the Cushite to bear the news to David. And in a strange turn of events, after the Cushite leaves, Ahimaaz continually uh, petitions Joab to go, and Joab uh, eventually concedes and allows Ahimaaz to run. And we're told simply that Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. So probably what that means is um, the Cushite took the straighter route over some mountains, whereas Ahimaaz took the more roundabout way, but it was faster in the long run, and he, he gets there first. The irony is both of these messengers, Ahimaaz and the Cushite, think that they are bringing good news to David. But each time David asks the same question, is it well with the young man Absalom? Literally, he asks, is it well with my boy, Absalom? And when the Cushite finally breaks the news, because Ahimaaz can't bear to break the news, he just says, uh, when I left, there was a commotion. I didn't see exactly what happened. He knows, but he, he lies. Instead, the Cushite is the one who tells David, Absalom is dead. And notice David has a breakdown in verse 33. I think that's probably the best term we could use to describe this. 
Verse 33, And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Now at this point, without assessing David's actions just yet, let's simply observe them. This is a man who is utterly devastated, is it not? This is a man who is having a complete meltdown. Because Absalom may have been a rebellious traitor, but he was also, as David repeatedly calls him, my boy, my son, Absalom. This is what sin does. It devastates. Sin devastates. The other truth running parallel to that one, however, is that God delivers. Sin devastates, but it's also true that God delivers. They're both true at the same time. While David is absolutely wrecked by this news, notice how everyone else around him interprets and responds to Absalom's death. So go back to chapter 18, verse 19, and pay attention to what Ahimaaz says to Joab. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run and carry news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. Ahimaaz thinks, I have good news to tell David. The Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies, which was true. That is how he interprets what just happened. The Lord has delivered David from the hand of his enemies. Now look down at verse 28, chapter 18, verse 28. This is where Ahimaaz arrives at the gate to tell David the news. Then Ahimaaz cried out to the king, All is well! And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, Blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. Now look at verse 31. This is when the Cushite arrives at the gate. And behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. So which of those two things is true? Did God deliver David from the hand of his enemies? Or was David absolutely devastated by what had happened? The answer is yes, right? God had delivered him from the hand of his enemies. But sin has also wreaked great devastation upon David and his family. Over and over through these different characters, the author is reminding us that while David may be personally devastated by the news of Absalom's death, God has delivered David from the hand of his enemies. God has delivered David from the people who have risen up against him. Then we come to Joab at the beginning of chapter 19. And this is where things get a bit trickier. Because it's one thing for the messengers, for Ahimaaz and the Cushite, to be naive, right? They're, they're, they're insensitive to how David might respond to the news that his son died. All they're thinking is, we won. We won the battle. David is king again. So they're, not, they're insensitive. They're naive. They're not thinking about how David's going to respond. Joab, on the other hand is not naive. He anticipates that, they, that David is not going to receive the news well. He tells Ahimaaz, listen, you don't want to be the one to carry this news. So he anticipates David's not going to receive this news well. Then he hears about David's public sorrow over Absalom. Chapter 19, verse 1, It was told David, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. 
So David is not hiding the fact that he is in sorrow. He is publicly mourning Absalom. And as a result of that, as a result of his knowledge of that, Joab pays David a visit. Look down at chapter 19, verse 5. And I want us to see this interaction between Joab and David. Verse 5. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have totally, you have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Now what in the world do we make of that rebuke? Keep in mind, Joab is the commander who blatantly disobeyed David's command. David told his three commanders before the battle, deal gently for my sake with Absalom. Do not lay a hand on Absalom. Joab is the one who, knowing full well that command, went and took a spear and jabbed it through Absalom and killed him. And now he's coming to rebuke David quite harshly for being sad that Absalom is dead. Now, there's a couple ways you could understand what Joab is saying there. You could take him to mean, listen, if you don't suck it up and get out there and act like the king, then I'm going to go out there and act like the king, and I'm going to rebel against you. That's one way you could understand him when he says, Arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants, for I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, out, if you do not, go not a man will stay with you this night. He could be saying, I'm going to go out and they're going to side with me. Or he could just be saying as a matter of realism, listen, David, if you don't go out there and act like the king, then um, all these people are going to turn against you, and this is going to be way worse. So the question is, who is right, David or, or Joab? We can certainly sympathize, I hope, with David's desire to show mercy to his son. To everyone else, Absalom may be a traitor, but to David he's flesh and blood. Both before and after Absalom's death, David refers to him in this deeply personal way, my boy Absalom. No one else could refer to Absalom that way, my boy Absalom. So how can our hearts not be wrenched as David anxiously waits at the gate for news? And as the messengers come and they're trying to give him good news, but all he can ask is, is it well with my boy Absalom? That's all I want to know. How can we not feel his sorrow as he hears the news of Absalom's death and he begins to weep and wail, Oh, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. We can, I hope, sympathize with that desire to show mercy before Absalom's death and with his sorrow after Absalom's death. But can we also try to understand Joab's perspective? Joab comes across as harsh. I think, as he berates David. But does he have a point? One crucial fact to remember here is that Absalom has never at any point given any any indication of repentance. It's not as if 
Absalom came back to David pleading for mercy, asking for forgiveness. Absalom was not like the prodigal son who returned home and wanted nothing more than to live as the child of his father once more. Absalom was more committed than ever to his rebellion. And not only was he against his father, his actions were causing a war between Israelites. He was attempting to leverage the power of God's people against God's chosen and anointed king. So one way we could put it is Absalom was like a cancer. David was unwilling to be the surgeon, but Joab was willing. Now I'm not in any way trying to suggest that... Uh, that the point of this passage is that we should kill wayward children because we live in an entirely different era of salvation history, right? And we're going to see that this story points us to uh, something that radically changes the way we read this story. But the point of the, the matter is Absalom is totally unrepentant. He does not come and ask for forgiveness. He does not ask for David to extend mercy and so the truth of the matter is, at this point in history, the right thing to do is for Absalom to be put to death. That might make us squirm. It might make us a little bit uncomfortable. But that was the right thing to do. David was unwilling to do it. Joab was willing to do it. So at least on some level, Joab is also right. We may not agree entirely with his tone or his tact. We might... We might like to pull him aside and say, Joab, you know, maybe there's a softer, more compassionate way you could approach David here. But the author gives us at least two clues that Joab is right in the basic content of his rebuke. Two, two big clues. Notice what the author says just before Joab confronts David. Look at verse 2, chapter 19, verse 2. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, O oh, my son Absalom, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Now we could ask the question here, do these people have any reason to be ashamed? And the answer is no. Because they are the ones who've remained loyal to God's anointed king. They're the ones who went out and risked their lives. Some of them even gave their lives to protect God's king and God's kingdom. So is there any reason why they should be ashamed of what they just did? Is there any reason why they should be, as the author puts it, instead of marching victoriously, stealing into the city as people who steal in, steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle? The author is, is hinting to us here that because of David's, because of the public nature of his mourning, he is throwing everything off as it should not be. He is turning their victory into mourning. He is turning their honor into shame. That's one clue that Joab is right, at least in the content of what he says to David. The other clue comes after Joab's rebuke. Uh, look, look at chapter 19, verse 8. And as we read this, I want you to think about how harshly Joab speaks to David. Joab does not come before David and, and say, Oh, you know, oh, my Lord the king, if it please you, blah, blah, blah. He says, 
you have done this. You've covered these people's face in shame, and you need to get up and go out there and act like king. Now notice how David responds to Joab in verse 8. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate. And the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate, and all the people came before the king. In other words, David does not disagree with Joab. He does not say to Joab, How dare you speak to me that way? I'm the king. He doesn't do that. He does not reprimand Joab. Nor does he have Joab executed for taking Absalom's life. We've seen David do that time and time again. People come up and they say, Hey, I killed Saul. What does David do? Executes them because he was the Lord's anointed. He doesn't do that with Joab. He doesn't have him executed. He doesn't even so much as slap him on the back of the hand. He just does what Joab told him to do. He goes and he sits at the gate and he begins fulfilling his responsibilities as king. Alright, so we can acknowledge, I hope, with David that Joab was right, at least in some way. But we can also still sympathize with David's sorrow over the death of his son. So in other words, what I'm saying is, was David right? Was Joab right? The answer is partly yes to both of them. They were both partly right. Yes, God has delivered David, but sin is still devastating. That is still true. David is weeping not only over Absalom's death, but over Absalom's unrepentance. Think about that. That's part of David's sorrow here, isn't it? That all Absalom had to do was, was come and ask for forgiveness, and this would have never gone this far. So it's possible to acknowledge the reality of something while still being devastated by it. David was right to mourn Absalom, and Joab and the others were right to remind David of God's deliverance. And when I say that sin devastates, I, I sort of have a double meaning in mind. David is not only mourning Absalom's death, he's not only mourning the consequences of Absalom's sin, but David's grief is multiplied partly because he knows that this is partly his own doing. Now, we don't need to lose sight of the fact that Absalom is the one who chose to act sinfully, and he bears the consequences of his sinful choices. But can we also acknowledge that Absalom's rebellion in the first place was partly a consequence of David's sin, and that it must surely be and that must surely be part of what devastates David in this moment? Is he knows that yes, Absalom has sinned, but I too have sinned. Back in 2 Samuel 12, when David committed adultery with Bathsheba and then tried to cover up his sin by murdering her husband Uriah, God sent the prophet Nathan to confront David over his sin and call him to repentance. Unlike Absalom, David did repent. But while David's repentance restored him to a right relationship with God, it did not free him from all the consequences of his sin. In particular, I want you to hear what Nathan told David in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 10. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. I don't know this to be true, but I just can't help but imagine that those words from Nathan 
were not banging around in David's head when he was in that room by himself weeping. The sword shall never depart from your house. We've seen that truth play out, unfortunately, in too many ways. The baby that David conceived with Bathsheba died, not because that baby did anything wrong, but because of David's sin. Then, David's son Amnon died. In fact, he was murdered by Absalom. Now Absalom himself is dead. David's grief is multiplied by his guilt. Maybe that's why David says to Absalom at the end of chapter 18, Would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. In other words, David is not necessarily acknowledging, he's not necessarily pretending that Absalom was not worthy of death, but he's simply acknowledging that he wasn't the only one worthy of death. David knows that Absalom is not the only one who sinned. He knows that he too is guilty and that the wages of sin is death. Would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. That's only half of the story. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death is another way of saying that sin devastates the other half of that truth is that the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, which is another way of saying that God delivers. I want us to see that these truths that are unfolding so painfully in the life of David in this moment point us to the very heart of the gospel that while sin devastates, God delivers. In particular, I want us just to consider how incapable David was of delivering himself from this enigma that his sin had caused. The fundamental puzzle surrounding Absalom, both before and after his death, is how could David reconcile the fact that as Israel's king, he needed to exact justice but as Absalom's father, he wanted to show mercy. His desire was to show mercy, but his obligation and responsibility was to exact justice. David could never reconcile those two things. He could never bring himself in any way to reconcile justice and mercy. mercy which is why God took the decision out of his hands. That's why in the providence of God, David was not on the battlefield. That's why in the providence of God, the people who heard David's command did not listen to him. That's why in the providence of God, Joab went and killed Absalom. Because David could not reconcile justice and mercy. Through Joab, God did what David could not do. For our sake, through Jesus, God did what we could not do. At the cross, God displayed His perfect justice and mercy. He poured out His righteous wrath against sin and simultaneously made a way to show mercy to sinners. Where else but at the cross of Christ do we see more clearly that sin devastates, but that God delivers? And while David, while we see David here weeping for his own griefs and over his own guilt we can then stop and think about our own griefs and our own guilt. I want you just to pause 
and to think about that for a moment, about the devastation that sin brings into our lives. As it's been said before, sin takes you farther than you want to go, keeps you longer than you want to stay, and costs you more than you want to pay. Sin is always far more costly than we would like to think before we ever do it. Sin devastates, but God delivers. As we see David weeping over his own griefs and his own sorrows and his own guilt, I want us to hear what the prophet Isaiah said of David's descendant, one who would come after him. He too, Jesus, would be a king who would suffer We see David here, a suffering king, but Jesus suffered not for his own sins and sorrows, but for ours. This is what Isaiah said. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, And carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation in a moment. And the invitation is not just to respond to a story about the devastation that David's sin brought and the grief that his sin brought and the deliverance that God brought to him. The invitation is is to respond to David's descendant, Jesus, who though He existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled Himself, taking the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of men. He humbled Himself even to the point of death on a cross. And God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Before we get there... He had to come here. He had to be a man of sorrows. He had to be acquainted with grief. He had to be one from whom men hid their faces because He was so despised and we esteemed Him not. He had to bear our griefs and carry our sorrows. He had to be stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. He had to be pierced for our transgressions. He had to be crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was on Him, and with His wounds we are healed. We have gone astray, all of us like sheep. We've turned everyone to our own way, and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. So the devastation that sin brings was brought upon Jesus so that the deliverance of God could come to us as His free and gracious gift. My plea with you this morning is not to take that gift lightly by thinking that you're good enough You're not. None of us are. Uh, The cross is the big roadblock to anybody who would think that they're good enough. The cross says there's only one. Only one.
Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are enough. Lord, we are the ones who brought sin into the world. We are the ones who bring devastation into the world by our sin. We are the ones who have broken our relationship with you. We are the ones who have messed up what you created. And yet, Lord, you have been so patient and gracious and merciful to us, abounding in steadfast love and kindness and goodness. And in your patient mercy, you sent your son, Jesus. Lord, as we see the sorrow of David over his son, Lord, would we see your mercy to us in your son, that you did not withhold the very best gift, but that you gave him to us. And how will you not with him also give us all things? So Lord, I pray that there would be no one here today who would think that you would withhold from them forgiveness or pardon or righteousness or sanctification or eternity because, Lord, you have already given your very best. And so, Lord, you have guaranteed your willingness to give us everything else with him. Lord, I pray right now, God, that we would all be convicted of this truth that you do not need us you are not like man. You don't need to be served by us, but that you invite us to come to you as your children. God, help us to respond rightly to you. Help us to come to you now just as we are. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.